It is good to be back with you. We returned late last night from Cuba, and I can confirm a couple of things for you uh, that are true from, uh, from our week's experience. We had a wonderful team here from Christ Church, uh, uh, of course, with our, uh, our marvelous uh, Cuban uh, docent and guide, Maria Densmore. I can confirm for you that Maria is more popular than the Castro brothers on the island. She has more power and influence there. And also that the gospel continues to be alive and well despite some of the most difficult conditions and circumstances that you can find. Uh, that God continues to prosper and bless the church. And so it was a wonderful week. You will hear many stories. I will try to capture a few of those for you today. But please uh, take the opportunity not to talk to me, but to the people also who got to go for the first time and just see. Uh, it's wonderful testimony. And knowing the power of God and seeing brothers and sisters uh, in a very different culture, but who also experience the very same work of God's Spirit in their hearts. So be encouraged by those stories and listen. Uh, please ask questions and, and listen to um, our friends who went. And uh, in, uh, over the week, there obviously are a lot of conversations that take place. But uh, there was one intriguing conversation that stood out. Uh, we were walking around on a very hot day, and we enter into a home that stretched way back, and you discover that there were probably some 20 people living in this rather large house, and we were taken back to a small den where we sat down with a young couple. They had just had their first child, and uh, they were somewhat interested in Christianity. The young lady, the mother, had grown up uh, around the church, her mother had since then become a Christian and had somewhat told her about the gospel. And she had some very practical questions for us. Her nephew was sitting there and also her husband. And then as it often is in Cuba, there was a group of uh, muchacho teenagers sitting out in the kitchen acting like they weren't listening, but they were really listening. And then the grandparents were in the next room and they acted like they weren't listening, but they were really listening too. <laughs> and the young woman, is she approached us and asked. She said, you know, I've heard many different things about the Christian life, but I need you to clarify for me a few things. She said, I've heard this and I've heard that. And I've heard this is what it means to be a Christian. And a Christian has to act this way and not this way. Can you help me with this? And friends, they were very practical, good, honest questions. They're questions that we somewhat are reserved to ask, but yet we still have them. What does it really mean to be a Christian? And what does it look like for us to mature in Christ? These are the things she was asking because she was trying to understand whether it was really plausible for her to take on faith in Jesus and where she could believe in him. She wanted to understand if that was something that she could accept. And friends, those are some of the most important questions for all of us to answer, to understand. What does it mean to be in Christ? And then what is Christ then drawing us into? What are we becoming? And over the next several weeks, this is what we will be looking at, who we are in Christ and what is Christ then doing in our lives? And we'll do so perhaps out of a unique location, and it might not strike you as intuitive at first, but we will consider the prayers of the Apostle Paul. There are many prayers littered throughout the New Testament that are normally at the beginning of, of the epistles, where Paul prays for the churches that he ministered to. And typically, when we look at these prayers, we consider those prayers from the vantage point of how do I learn to pray? 
And guys, that is a really legitimate and wonderful way to read these passages, to consider them as a model of prayer and to learn to pray after their way and after their path. But one other way to consider these prayers is to ask what direction do the prayers point? What was Paul praying for the churches? Because in those prayers, we learn of what was really important to him, what he was interested in seeing develop and grow in the people's lives. And so this is the angle we'll take. What was Paul praying would develop and grow? What does a spiritually vitalized life look like? What direction does that take? Who are we in Christ, our being, and where is he taking us? Are becoming. And so this morning we will be looking in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 1, uh, uh, primarily focused on verses 16 through 19. And the question before us is what does a vitalized and healthy Christian life require? And there are two things, and you may think you're getting off easy, but there is this famous saying uh, from Mark Twain. Um, he once wrote a letter to a friend, and he said, um, Friend, I would have written you a short letter, but I didn't have time. So I've written you a long letter. And this is the great myth of preaching. Short sermons are actually tremendously more difficult to write. Long sermons are when you're being lazy or perhaps you were pressed for time. This week was full, so we'll do our best. <laughs> Two points, though. What does a vitalized and healthy Christian life require? First, our spiritual life depends upon the generosity of God. You find Paul praying for the Ephesians. After he addresses God, in verse 17, he goes to the heart of it. The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is what Paul prays for the church that God would give out of his generosity in his grace that he would give us a gift, and that is the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, it's common for us to speak of having any spiritual truth from God that he is the one who must open the heart and illumine our understanding, that this is the spirit of God's work to draw us to faith in Jesus. We discuss these things, and we even discover this in the first part of the chapter. In verses 13 and 14, we see the role of the Holy Spirit in teaching and instructing those who are brought to faith in Jesus. The, the Apostle Paul says something very similar to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you follow with me, in verses 12 through 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And this is the great truth of the gospel, that is the spirit who breaks through and gives us understanding, not simply in our intellect, but in our heart, that we value the truth that we are hearing from God, that we receive it, and that this is the recreative and powerful work of the spirit. And we were able to see this as a team time over time this week. 
In one conversation, I was sitting down with, with a peer. He uh, was my age and was a very educated uh, university professor. He had uh, received more training uh, than, than I had professionally. He was very impressive, bright, uh, young man. And we talked through his objections to the gospel. He was not incredibly interested uh, in becoming a Christian, but he was interested in discussing it. And so he brought out his objections, and I felt very comfortable because it'd be a similar conversation that you could have here in the United States. I felt very much on my own turf in the conversation. I presented what I thought was a pretty decimating argument to what he said, and he looked at me and just pretty much said, so what? <laughs> but I've enjoyed your company. If you ever come back, please come back and sit with me. And we went about drinking our guava juice. I left scratching my head. Then we go a little bit later to another house, a, a fairly elderly lady who lived literally next door to the church. She shared a wall almost with the church. Uh, so certainly she had heard them preach. She had heard them praising God. She had listened to them pray for many, many years. And people had shared the gospel with her many, many times. And I was just one more tool in the, in the kit. And we arrive in the lady's home. She welcomes us. We sit down. We talk through the gospel. She had some misunderstandings and things that needed to be clarified from a cultural background. And then she suddenly says, I get it. Have you heard it before? Yes, but I get it. And friends, I can never tell you the difference between what happened except for what Scripture says, that the Spirit of God illumines the heart and gives us understanding and draws us to faith. And on one hand, it happened, and on another hand, it didn't. Despite all the things that were said, despite our best intellect, despite our best thoughts, that it ultimately is dependent upon the grace of God to open the heart and to draw a person to themselves. And so we know that about conversion and the work of the Spirit. And Paul here speaks inclusively of that, but he also addresses something else. And this something else oftentimes goes neglected in the Christian life. Consider again what he says. The God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Of whom is he speaking? He is not speaking to the non-Christian here. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the community of believers who have already received the spirit. He outlines this in verse 13, that they were sealed in the Spirit. They possessed the Spirit. They've been converted by the Spirit. And now he prays that God may grant them the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And what Paul is charting out here is that we must be illumined by the Spirit of God to go deeper into the grace of God. That illumination does not simply stop at conversion that we don't have a transaction with God and then we're simply left to our own devices, but rather that the Spirit continually works to fill the Christian heart and to give understanding into the great mysteries of the love and the grace of God. And so Paul prays that the Spirit may continue to enlighten the eyes of our hearts is the language he uses in verse 18. John Calvin in his Institute says something very similar to this. He writes, nor does Scripture teach that our minds are illumined only on one day and that they may thereafter see of themselves. 
For what I have just quoted from Paul, he was quoting from Colossians chapter 1, has reference to continuing progress and increase. And so he's speaking of the continued illumining work of God. And then he comments on David, the author of Psalm 119. And listen to what he says a few verses, a few sentences later. Although he had been reborn and had advanced to no mean extent in true godliness, he still confesses that he needs continual direction at every moment. And friends, this is the dependence of the Christian life that we need continued illumination at every moment from God to take us deeper and deeper into the grace of God, that the eyes of our hearts must be illumined. They must be enlightened. Now, this word for enlightened here is an interesting one because we don't have a tense that matches what the original has inside of it. It is called the past perfect, but what it simply refers to is something that happens in the past, a past action that has ongoing implications. What this means is that something happened definitely, definitively in the past, and it continues to happen. It continues to unfold. And friends, this is what the illumination of the Spirit is. We are drawn into conversion, and then the Spirit continues to illumine those truths to take us deeper and deeper into them. And so Paul prays that the Spirit will illumine us so that we know the implications of all that belongs to us in Christ. It's essential to the Christian life, a simple, humble, honest prayer that God illumines the heart. Before every sermon, we say a prayer of illumination. Many people can simply lose that in the order of the liturgy and think, oh, this is one place where the pastor gathers his thoughts and says a prayer. This morning we quoted from Psalm 36, in your light we see light, God grant us light. Don't miss that little moment week by week because this is what we're talking about today. And when we pray and we pray together and we ask God to give us light and understanding, we are humbly coming and we're dependently coming and we're asking God to give. And it's only him that can give it. He's the only one who can extend that to you. He's the only one who can extend that to me, that I know the value of all that we read, that I understand, that I comprehend, that I go further into what he's done. And that prayer we say is to guide you in all your encounters with the Word of God. That each time you pick up the Bible, that you simply ask God, grant me light. Give me understanding. Enlighten the eyes of my hearts. Draw me into the fullness of your truth. Over the week, we had opportunity to spend a great deal of time together as a team, eating meals and different things, and had lunch, one conversation started. Because in the American church, there have been several scandals of late. In fact, not several, many, a multitude of them. And unfortunately, there have been a number of Christian leaders who've fallen prey to various sins, moral failures, sexual affairs, divorces, and different things. And it's been sad. If you follow some of the Christian media, you perhaps know of this. And it leaves people with a lot of questions. And during lunch, we talked about some of the sadness of this and people asking just what happened these were people we knew and esteemed we've listened to we've read their books we've done all kinds of things what happened and one christian leader then responded wouldn't god want me to be happy 
In the midst of his moral failure, in the midst of all of the mess and all the people he had offended, his only response then was, wouldn't God want me to be happy? And someone asked me, Chuck, how does that happen? What does that look like? And it is a source of curiosity. It's something that I think about a great deal. But here's the one thing that struck me as I was preparing from Ephesians 1. The one common thread across all of these situations, despite the great differences between the different kinds of pastoral failures that are going on, there's one common denominator that must certainly stand behind it all, that the simple prayer for God to illumine the heart, to captivate us, to take us deeper into the mysteries of God was certainly lost. Because what we hear from these leaders is an emphasis on wouldn't God want me to be happy? Not an emphasis on what are the riches that God has lavished on us in Christ. Let me go deeper into that. Rather, there's an emphasis on going deeper into my happiness and my emotional satisfaction or my power or my job or whatever it is. And so, friends, at the heart of Christian vitality, of the ongoing Christian life, there has to be this humility asking God to give us light that will convict, that will drive us, that will take us forward, that returns us to the grace of God. And so we live in a dependence upon God's generosity to grant us the spirit for understanding. Now, the second piece of this, though, is that our vitality requires that we go further into the grace of God. You'll see how Paul's prayer develops He asks that they be granted a spirit of wisdom and revelation, having the eyes of their heart enlightened. And then further into verse 18, he mentions three things, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. That is the hope of God's calling on your life. And then secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That is the treasure that God has in the church that God treasures the church, that you would know the the riches that he looks on you with. Mind-blowing statement. And then in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And that power was exercised and demonstrated in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. And so he asked that we would be illumined and enlightened in understanding this hope the riches that he has, and also the great power that he exercises towards us in saving us. It's important just to break some of this down. There's more than we can handle there. But in the word just wisdom alone, I want to show you the connections between verse 17 and what has gone before us in verses 3 through 14. Paul here uses the word wisdom, and it's a very specific word. In the Bible, the word wisdom can just mean practical knowledge. It's used very often in the book of Proverbs, and someone who's considered wise who just has practical knowledge about the way uh, the world works. But the word wisdom in the Bible also refers to those who have spiritual understanding of the plan and purposes of God. And this is the way Paul uses it here. Please track with me in verses 7 through 10. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, that is Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so there is the word wisdom along with insight. 
making known to us, then we're going to find out what the wisdom is that we've received. Making known to us the mystery of his will. So this is the wisdom. It's the mystery of God's will. And then we're going to find out what the mystery of his will is. According to his purpose, that is God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so what is the wisdom that we receive from God? It is the great plan and purpose of God in the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And this happens through the blood of the cross. And friends, this is the thing about the Christian life, is that we're not asking the Spirit to go beyond what has been revealed. The Spirit doesn't bring new information. What the Spirit does is takes us into the wisdom of God. It takes us deeper into the grace of God. This is what belongs to you is the grace of God. And this is what Paul has labored to express in verses 3 through 14. That the Father has planned and determined your salvation before the foundations of the world. That the Son has accomplished that salvation by going to the cross and shedding his blood. And that the Spirit has applied that salvation to you. Everything is yours in Christ. And now the Spirit is illumining you taking you not beyond this grace of God, this great plan of God to consummate all things in his son, but to take you deeper and deeper into it. And so we don't go past the gospel. Rather, we go further into it. We can never get bored with it. It's not a gateway we pass through and then forget about. It's not a transaction that we leave behind. It's rather something that we relish and we cherish and we go with and we travel with all of life. And we find ourselves fascinated by it. Everything is ours, but we must grow in the understanding and experience of what this means. This is the work of revelation. It's the work of inspiration. It's the work of illumination. It's to take you into everything God has given you in Jesus. I was speaking with a friend recently who was working with a couple in his congregation. It's a difficult marriage the woman in the marriage is a gospel-filled, brilliant, beautiful woman, full of life. She married a man prior to her conversion, and he's been difficult. It's been hard. He's critical of her. He doesn't appreciate her faith, and she doesn't, he isn't drawn to the same things that she is. My friend commented to me, he said, you know, it's, it's amazing. He doesn't even know what he has. He doesn't know how to appreciate what he was given. And perhaps you've seen situations, marriages like that. But as I listened to my friend, it also became clear that this is the struggle of the church as well. Not just in our marriages, but it's our struggle with the gospel. That we have been given everything in Christ and we can grow critical we become self-satisfied we become complacent and we're not pressing ahead and appreciating all that is ours we're not diving into the depths of it and relishing it knowing all that God has lavished on us the great plan of the ages to unite all things in heaven and on earth something that we can never fully get our minds around and that's the work of the Spirit is to take you into the depths 
of this, of this great mystery. And so friends, who are you? And what are you becoming? What is your being and what is your becoming? And how do those things happen? This is how. A simple, humble prayer that depends upon the generosity of God. Asking him, illumine my heart. Enlighten the eyes of, our, of my heart. Teach me your truth in your way. And then knowing that God is not taking you beyond the gospel, beyond his grace. He's taking you further into it. This is the path towards spiritual vitality. This is one of the first things. And so let's not be that complacent, self-satisfied, smug person who's been granted everything and doesn't know what to do with it. Rather, ask God to take you deeper into it. Let's pray.